Coming up on Transformers University, we return to the G1 cartoon one last time in 1986 to cover three of the more interesting episodes of the season. Some have great animation, some have interesting storytelling, all of them are worth talking about right now on Transformers University. Hello, my friend, and welcome to Transformers University. I am your host, Anthony Brucalli, owner, operator, madman behind TFU.info, the website, the Toy Archive, this podcast, and oh so much more. I want to welcome you to episode number 88. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. And in episode number 88, we're going to see some serious stuff. Indeed. Before we get into the three episodes we are going to cover today to round out 1986 and the G1 cartoon. And note, I said 1986, not season three. We'll actually tackle a couple more season three episodes in 1987. But before we do that, I do want to read a few things from the mailbag. We've got a couple of emails. Now, I got to admit, I am not the best at checking info at tfu.info. I don't check it nearly as often as I should, uh, and so sometimes some emails do sit for a while. And I want to give a shout out first to Daniel Collis, who wrote in about episode 84, and episode 84 was about the Transformers Universe uh, Profiles book from Marvel Comics. and. Daniel here had a, a quick correction for me, and one I, I really don't think I knew. Uh, so I really do appreciate this, Daniel. So thanks for the heads up. I mentioned in the episode that in the Marvel book um, for Predaking, the entry for Predaking, that it was the only way to kind of get his text back in the U.S. So he did have he didn't have a gift set here, and he did have a gift set overseas. Um, but as it turns out. And I didn't know this, probably because I bought my Predaking secondhand at a BotCon years and years and years ago. In the instruction booklets, his tech spec was there with the instructions to combine him. So uh, there are English uh, versions of his tech specs listed in the instructions. Good to know. So Daniel, once again, thank you for that. Now, the second email I wanted to just give a shout out to was Bradley Glenn. Now Bradley writes in, hello Anthony, as a Transformers fan since the second episode back in 1984, I've been enjoying listening to almost all of your podcasts while at work. They are quite thorough and informative. Recently, I listened to the episode where you covered the season three episode, The Ultimate Weapon. Did you notice that for some reason, Daniel's animation model was drawn larger and older than the other episodes? It's like his body aged a couple of years, but with the same voice, obviously. Bradley goes on to write, Suggestion for a future topic. A summary of all the secret files of Teletran 2. Noting that the Metroplex and Trypticon 1 had some brand new animation. Oh, Bradley, you are in for a treat because we are going to take a look at those at the end of this episode. So not only are we going to talk about three very important episodes from Season 3. Those being Call of the Primitives, The Face of Ninjika, and The Burden Hardest Bear. But we'll also talk about the secret files of Teletran 2. Did that Metroplex Trypticon 1 have some brand new animation? I'm going to have to go back and relook before we talk about it. Once again, thanks Bradley for the email. And before we get into the show, 
Gotta remind you of a few things. Hey, want to help out this podcast or the website tfu.info? There's a number of ways you can do it. Let me tell you how. You can help us directly by joining our Patreon and enrolling as a student at Transformers University. There, you'll get early access to the podcast as well as exclusive behind-the-scenes peaks and perks for as little as $1 a month. Sign up is quick and easy. Just swing on by to www.patreon.com slash tfuinfo. Another way you can help us is by using our Amazon link, www.tfu.info slash Amazon. Type that into your browser whenever you want to shop at Amazon and a portion of what you spend will be contributed back to us. It's that easy. Finally, you don't become the world's longest running transforming toy archive without some help from other fans. We're always on the hunt for photos of figures and accessories we're missing from our pages. If you'd like to contribute, go to tfu.info help for a list of what we need or send an email to info at tfu.info. tfu.info, the alpha trion and omega prime of transforming toys. Now, back to the show. So let's get started with our talk about the episodes and we're going to kick it off with season three episode 26 overall episode 91 call of the primitives that one by donald f glute original air date november 18th 1986 and this one has a bit of a legacy and it's something that you're just going to have to watch the episode to understand the art style in this episode is considered the best artwork in a G1 episode overall. I tend to agree. Um, it's kind of hard to argue with it. There's a very strong anime influence to this episode and to the art in this episode. A lot of pointy antenna on a lot of robots. Uh, it does look really cool, though. Uh and it even starts out with this trippy open with the birth of something called Tornadron, an energy that is unleashed into space. You shall succeed where the other failed. He was matter, you are energy. He forgot who ruled him, you shall not. So from there, Tornadron and uh, interesting note here on the name, TF Wiki has Tornadron with a D-R-O-N, but everyone in the show sounds like they're saying Tornatron, T-R-O-N. Uh, I'm going to default that the wiki has this right, um, but let your ears decide for you. Now, Tornadron hitches a ride on a comet and somewhere on an asteroid. Uh, the Autobots and Decepticons are fighting a pair of sweeps who identify themselves as sweeps six and seven uh, approach the asteroid and the battle and on cybertron or a moon of cybertron cup has a stage one alert i'm looking all over for you i gotta get out of here prano i got a stage five clinger uh, there's a lot of robots running around in the background looking busy uh, among those are jazz and bumblebee uh, this is the final appearance of jazz in the g1 cartoon and uh, though he's not voiced uh, it's interesting to note that this episode did air four days before the passing of scatman crothers the voice of jazz also running in the background and not dead wind charger so i guess he didn't die in the movie uh or maybe that's an animation error you decide 
So Tornatron attacks uh, Cybertron as a spider and starts draining the energy of the planet. Uh, you hear his master in voiceover continue. Already, Tornatron, you have done more than your predecessor, Unicron. And you know, there's some interesting art here of Unicron uh, as they come out of this scene. And he's his head is floating around Cybertron, but now it's like stoned over. So it's not just the robot head. It's like encased in rock. And uh, it's an interesting, interesting look for Unicron. And the holes and things that are blown in it have been covered over. Um, it's probably an animation error, but it really does look cool. Uh, back at the battle, a mysterious voice calls for the primitives. Back to the primitive. uh, he calls for the Dinobots and accidentally calls Sludge by the wrong name. Come slow, sweet swoop and slack. Come all primitives. Now, the primitives are basically anyone with a beast form. So we have the Dinobots, the Predacons, the Terracons, Ravage, and Ratbat. Slugfest and Overkill in their only appearance in the cartoon. Uh, Trypticon, Skylinks, Steeljaw, and Ramhorn. Oddly enough, with all the cassettes out there flying out of Soundwave's chest in one scene, Laserbeak and Buzzsaw are left out of the equation. But, you know, Grimlock, Grimlock feels compelled. Me, Grimlock, must answer call, even though Grimlock don't know who calls or where from. Now, the Primitives board Trypticon, and everyone flies off. Uh, Skylynx doesn't board Trypticon, but flies outside of him. The Decepticons follow, and Tornadron finds this asteroid moon, whatever the heck it is. It might be Earth's moon, um... And drains the energy of the Autobots on it. And then the Decepticons who are off following Trypticon. He then goes and drains the energy of a blue planet that may or may not be Earth. On Trypticon, the Predacons and Dinobots decide to fight each other. And the Terracons... Terracons fight everybody! Trypticon shakes things up to stop the fights going on inside of his body and the primitives find the origin of the call they land and take a look look strange creature grimlock think it dangerous enemy grimlock stomp enemies now grimlock grimlock know what he does the strange creature disappears and grimlock runs off a cliff they enter a cave and find the narrator. Now, the narrator is called the Oracle in the script, and he is voiced by Greg Berger. I have summoned you here to tell you a tale of long ago. Oh, me, Grimlock, love long ago tale. Then allow me to tell it. Near the beginning of the galaxy, an organic being we shall know as Primacron built some of the primitives. As his powers grew, so too did his ambitions. His creatures were bigger and bigger, and finally, he created the monstrous Unicron. Unicron decided to rule himself and tried to dispose of Primacron. He failed, leaving Primacron broken but alive, while I, the Primacron's assistant, escaped to this dead world. 
And it's weird, when they show the Oracle escape, he escapes in The Matrix. Uh, it's, it's a weird thing. Again, this being done by probably an animation studio that hadn't worked on the show before, uh, really went, they went all out to really make it look cool, uh, but in, inadvertently might have caused a few things to happen story-wise that didn't necessarily mean to happen. Uh, the narrator then explains Tornadron's creation. Primacron then vowed not to make the same mistake again. Instead of creating a beast of matter like Unicron that could rebel, he created Tornadron, a cloud of living energy that, like a cannibal, feeds on energy, leaving suns dark and planets inert, blank slates to do with as he pleases. Primacron is a creature of sophisticated brilliance. His powerful brain conceives of infinitely complex plans. But perhaps he thinks too hard. Perhaps your simple instincts can defeat his plans. Therein lies our greatest hope. Therein lies our greatest fear. So... The plan is to defeat Smart with stupid? Then Tornadron attacks as a dragon and drains Trypticon. Trypticon falls and everyone tries to get out of the way. And Grimlock is crushed by the fall of Trypticon. Skylinks, aggravated at the death of his companion, uh, friend. I don't know if I would call them each other friends, but I don't think Skylinks has many friends. Uh, attacks and is drained, and the rest of the primitives scatter. Tornadron then splits into four. He attacks and defeats the Cassettes, uh, the Autobots, and the Decepticons. As a tiger, he even eats Ratbat. Uh, he fights Predaking as a giant robot and wins. Uh, he fights the Terracons as a three-headed dragon and wins, and then defeats the Dinobots as a different dragon. Grimlock then frees himself from under Trypticon, and sees Tornadron head for something in the sky. He flies in dinosaur mode, which uh, I don't think we've ever seen, and it's, uh, it's very bizarre looking, and follows him. Turns out Primacron can no longer control Tornadron. Strange! Tornadron does not respond to my commands! I order you to stop Tornadron! I take no orders from you. Instead, I take your life force. And Primacron there, voiced by Neil Ross. Primacron panics as Grimlock arrives. Grimlock is shocked at how tiny Primacron is. And Primacron just can't figure out how to get Tornadron under control. Grim, he throws a joystick. I've amplified the energy parameters, minimized the drive augmenter, redirected the ion flow. I've tried everything! Me Grimlock solve problem? Of course, the reverse switch. Why didn't I think of that? Wait, what? There was just a reverse stick on there that Primacron didn't figure out how to use well tornadron then flies in reverse over everything he had passed back over before which means everything comes back to life the blue planet the moon asteroid thing all of the autobots all of the decepticons cybertron everything that we had seen and grimlock grimlock's happy 
Grimlock saved universe! <laughs> oh, Grimlock hero! <laughs> Stop it, you stupid! Why you call Grimlock stupid? You ruined my lap! <laughs> Me, Grimlock, think that is smartest thing I ever done! And if you're happy and you know it, stomp your feet, because that's what Grimlock did and destroys the entire lab. The end. Uh, quick note here, Primercron, voiced by Philip C. Clark. This one, you know, the story is weird because it gives the origin of Unicron. Um, the plot is very thin. Uh, it's basically about sending the beasts all to one place to fight this one thing that had a reverse button. And... It does kind of set up this weird origin for Unicron that is vastly different than what we'll see in the Marvel comics later on. That said, it, it is one of the most highly regarded episodes of G1, and it is certainly a must-watch. Now that takes us to Season 3, Episode 27. Overall, Episode number 92, The Face of the Nijika. And this episode written by Mary Screenies and Steve Skeets. Now, it's the first and only time this pair would write for the original Transformers series. Mary Screenies, a comic and TV writer, wrote five episodes of Gem, three episodes of G.I. Joe, those three being uh, Iceberg Goes South, Bazooka Saw a Sea Serpent, and Red Rocket's Glare. Red Rocket! Red Rocket! Come on! <laughs> she was also co-creator with uh, Steve Gerber, famous Marvel writer, uh, of a character called Omega the Unknown. And Steve Gerber, the late Steve Gerber, was uh, a story editor on season three of Transformers. Gerber would actually go on to base Beverly Switzler, Howard the Duck's girlfriend, on Mary Screenies. She also wrote some comics under the pen name Virgil North and often wrote with her writing partner, Steve Skeets. Now, Steve Skeets, longtime comics writer, started as uh, assistant editor to Stan Lee, but was so bad at the job that uh, they removed him from the position after two weeks and moved him to the role as a writer. Uh, he then moved around uh, the comics industry. He wrote Aquaman from 1968 to 1970, The Flash from 1970 to 1972, uh, Peter Porker, the spectacular spider ham. Uh, he wrote the first seven issues of that, plus issue 10. Uh, he wrote the What If issue of What If Aunt May Had Been Bitten by the Radioactive Spider. And a uh, personal one for me that I, I really like is that he wrote uh, the first 11 issues in the late 60s of Abbott and Costello comics. I've never read them, but now that I know they exist, I must read them. Moreover, he is known for co-creating the characters Hawk and Dove for DC with Steve Ditko. He also wrote under a couple of pen names, Chester P. Hazel and Warren Sabin, and won the Bill Finger Award for writing at San Diego Comic-Con in 2012. Now, for more on this episode, I'm going to turn it over to my good friend, the Salty Sea Man, Gabriel Owens. Give me your Passed from reviewer to reviewer in a desperate attempt for someone to give a crap about it. Hi, it's the Salty Seaman, and we're talking about Face of the Ninjika, which I believe it's, if I'm off, I'll, I'm about to watch it here. 
Uh, yeah, uh, what, definitely up in my list of most forgettable episodes. And I'm to appear not to be wrong about this. You know, I kind of got assigned this one. You know, this batch has a lot more fun episodes. And, uh, you know, and it's kind of like I need someone to do this. I'm like, okay, sure. Wouldn't have been an episode I picked. But, uh, yeah, it's one. You know, I know I, I, I think I'm, I, I when it first aired, I only caught part of it. And I don't, I think I might have been when they were switching to mornings. Not quite, you know, uh, figured out how to, you know, record uh, use the VCR in the living room to record it. Or my mom would sometimes just forget the, and change the channel back to the news or whatever. What is this garbage you're watching? Hey, I want to watch the, the news. Are you, making, are you making headway at least? This is the news. Having a couple episodes. But, I remember, you know, I, I definitely saw it a couple times in uh, the various reruns over the years. Uh, you know, in my rewatchings as adults, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure we will... I uh, went through it with my uh, my son when he was in the Transformers and he was much younger. But yeah, I don't remember anything. I know Percept- it's Perceptor and there's a face and uh, man, I just never remember this friggin' episode and like it never sticks in my head and uh, yeah, and it just you know it seems <laughs> and even Ant was like I he completely forgot about it. He said he just rewatched it and it's good. But yeah, I don't have any memories of it. So this will be fun. Uh, let's see, Face of the Ninjika. I gotta say, uh, everything's agreeing with me. I'm having the damnedest time playing this friggin' episode. I downloaded a uh, a copy. It's how I usually do uh, from the uh, from the interwebs. Arr. And uh, yeah, it gave me like a ten minute clip for some reason instead of the full episode. And then you know, I like I was like, wait, there's got to be a better way to do this. And I'm like, oh yeah, so it's on. You know, try to go to Hulu, and it's like, oh, you need an extension. And then I was like, oh, it's on Tubi, and I have a Tubi account, so here I am. But for some reason, it skipped over. It went to a, um, a much more popular episode, The Return of Optimus Prime. <laughs> Even Tubi was like, no, nah, you don't want to watch this. You want to watch uh, you want to watch this one. So uh, I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, so episode starts off. We have the uh, Autobots on an undefined uh, mission of some sort. Uh, and uh, it's kind of a Star Trekian thing. We get an, un- they get an unusual signal from the Quadrant, blah, blah, blah. We've got uh, Ultra Magnus, uh, Rodimus... Uh, blur and perceptor uh and they are uh, right away i, I believe the, the where they're sitting seems to switch around a little bit and blur blur's kind of wandering around you know talking very fast um yeah it looks it's, it's a basic uh you know we're ba- we have a very weak setup for this plot you know here we're gonna go let's see how much of this i remember so it turns out to be uh looks like the quintessons and the and galvatron and his guys are having a little scuffle uh, and uh, Rodimus decides, well, hey, this is kind of a this is some affairs we should be meddling in as well. It probably affects us. And then we switch over to uh, Galvatron, who starts off the episode great. Uh, so far, actually, there's a couple of bits I'm liking here. Uh, one, before I forget, uh, Skylink's uh, wonderfully vain. Uh, really, really enjoying uh, so far him. Uh, just. <laughs> You know, just everything he says is just so wonderful. And then with Galvatron, he starts off by punching Cyclonus square in the jaw. Uh, do love me some crazy violent Galvatron. So we get a uh, three-way fight with the Autobots show up. Uh, the Quintessons driving a, uh, a ship very much like their, uh, the one from the movie. I'm sure this is all stock stuff they pulled. Uh, animation kind of looks crisp, but uh, it's still it's jerky in places. Well, you know, Skylinks was talking to the Autobots inside him. You know, they were basically stock still for about ten seconds, and uh, and as he transforms, 
which uh, usually, you know, they don't transfer, you know, the, the larger ones, you know, the, the carriers and whatnot usually wait for everyone to exit. And I always assumed that was because, you know, there's a lot of stuff moving on inside of them that would squish everybody. But in this case, no, they fully transforms and everyone ex- exits through Skylink's mouth, which has never shown to be big enough to do it. And the animation is really, really cheating with it. But, uh, you know, but it still looks kind of cool. Like it's just the, the, the models are really sharp and kind of fun. And I suppose I should mention the uh, the MacGuffin of this episode is some kind of uh, floating disc in space that the Quintessons own, which I believe is a kind of a space worm warp, if I recall, we'll see. Uh, and yeah, that's the Autobots are like, okay, well, what is this they're fighting over? It must be important. And, you know, Galvatron apparently knows what it is and is trying to steal it from them. So uh, the Quintessons decide to uh, go through these, uh, the space warp and uh, everyone is pulled through with them in their, uh, I guess, their space uh, exhaust intake. I don't know. But there's one funny scene where Galvatron, you know, in, in a desperate attempt to stop Autobots and Quintessons, just hurls Cyclonus through space. It's so great. So we get, uh, you know, kind of a, another another MacGuffin here uh, that uh, the Quintessons ship gets junked and they can't go back through the warp without uh, fixing their ship. And they spot Perceptor among the Autobots who have managed to live, you know, coming through with their, their intake, or however that worked. And, uh, you know, they say he has a universal emulator on here, which now it is ringing, this episode does ring a bell. Because I do remember using that concept. Uh, I think because I, I saw the first, like, 12 minutes of this episode. And that's the one bit I got was like, oh, he's got some kind of powerful uh, Hitchamadu. And I do remember using that in my uh, in my playtime in my little fanfic toy cannon. So, yes, this episode is now ringing some bells. So they crash land on this uh, primitive planet with uh, looks like the extras from uh, a Conan the Barbarian movie. Uh, maybe I think it looks like a certain realm out of Forgotten Realms, uh, vaguely uh, Himalayan Mongolish barbarian kind of looking things. And uh, we, we, they they capture Perceptor, who's been who's stuck in uh, giant uh, microscope mode. And uh, you know they we hear you know Ninjika, which is uh, looking at his Autobot symbol face. Go to uh, Rodimus and uh, Ultra Magnus. You know hit the local foliage and said it was like hitting uh, steel, which uh, Ultra Magnus comments that the uh, molecular. Uh, Density of this planet's really high, which basically means the the human-looking barbarian things are uh, going to be on equal level with these giant robots, I assume. And we hit the commercial break with the uh, now very, obviously, uh, Asian stereotype uh, barbarian people uh, carves out uh, Perceptor's universal emulator behind his insignia, while Perceptor uh, you know, almost painfully narrates to the audience what is happening. What in the name of Alpha Trion? Rodimus, Ultra Magnus, Blur! I'm in a terrible predicament! The Universal Emulator, located behind my insignia, he's removing my insignia! Ah, uh, yeah, we get the idea. Thank you, Perceptor. So the, uh... The barbarian Asian-looking stereotype uh, goes to another, uh, like, a geisha... It was like some kind of automaton, you know, obviously, in a, you know, geisha stereotype. 
Boy, this episode is a lot, full of a lot of them for supposedly being on an alien planet. But basically, he takes the emulator and the Autobot uh, from and Perceptor's Autobot signal and puts it into her face. Uh, a little body horror for some people. I could see this uh, probably disturbed a lot of people. You know, uh, poor Perceptor, you know, being stuck in a, a defenseless mode, just having crap ripped out of him. You know, then just being stuck on the face of this thing. I mean, uh, yeah, th- th- this is a little creepy and, uh, you know, leads up to, of course, the Quintessons want it as well because they want to power their ship back home. So send down the Sharktacons who end up in a brawl with our uh, uh, Asian barbarian uh, tinkerer here. And yeah, this guy is tough. He runs off a pack of Sharktacons like they were scalded dogs. But uh, the uh, also through season three, the effectiveness of the Sharktacons has gone increasingly down since the, uh, the movie. But uh, suddenly, uh, once he runs them off, the Nijika speaks in Perceptor's voice, and he seems very, very surprised by this. So then we get cut to uh, Ultra Magnus, Rodimus, and Blur. Blur uh, took the fall of the worst. Uh, he had a boulder, which he says, you know, if, if he thought the trees were bad, he should have felt the boulder, so his back's pretty screwed up. And he's complaining because he can't be his normal uh, fast self. He even slows down his speech for a little while and... Sounds like John. Sounds like regular John Machida, which is I. I, I kind of like. Go find Perceptor. You fix him. Maybe he can fix me. So they uh, determine he's like go on without me. Find Perceptor. You know he can fix me. You know he can probably help fix me once you get him. Basically, and uh, you know as soon as like you know, I mean I guess it was edited for time, but I mean the way it's cut, it's it's so bad because it really looks. It's literally, you know, as soon as Rodimus and Magnus walk off screen, the Barbarians walk on, you know, and somehow, you know, they 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 move so quickly away from Blur, they didn't hear any of this, and you know, and of course, Blur is in bad shape here, and he, we already saw how tough these guys are, so does not look good for our favorite fast-talking uh, speed racer. So we cut back to uh, Perceptor Ninjika. Uh, getting um, trying to get exposition out of the uh, the tinker bar- Asian barbarian, who uh, you know proceeds to tell you know the, throughout the episodes they've they, you know they they do not look at the transformers as you know something they didn't recognize they immediately they recognize them and they hate them they've been calling them these devils things and now we get into uh, you know the origin of you know their their distrust and hate for the uh, the transformers or at least robots not like them. Tell me more about these devils. It was long ago that they came. In the days when our city of Tozin itself shone bright as a star. And our guardian, Koduri, had not yet descended into slumber. My ancestor, Nikodon, had invented a flying tower. And now... With the aid of Kodori, the Zamorjan people will take their first step to the stars. I wished to ride the tower myself, but the Iberes would not allow it. So Nikodan has also created our first voyager, Nijika, the sky dancer. Nijika, I, I'm never going to say this right. Uh, the ninja, I, I always said face of the ninja as a kid. But anyway... Uh, yeah, it was uh, it looks like some kind of automatron they created, and you know, on their space takeoff, 
the Quintessons attack. So that is the uh, where the hatred seems to stem from. And uh, we see a rare uh, bit with the Quintessons, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, directly uh, combat, combative. They're on these, like, uh, hover skids with uh, cannons on them. They're coming in, uh, you know, shooting up the place. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So Perceptor explains uh, that, you know, their devils aren't really devils. They're, in fact, uh, aliens called Quintessons, and they were trying to uh, halt their evolution for uh, reasons, with a capital R. Uh, you know, and they, and they end up, you know, setting them back, you know, thousands of years, apparently, uh, using the uh, their wormhole disc thingy. Quadrant Lock. That's the name of the MacGuffin. Thank you, Cyclonus. So we cut to Rodimus and Ultra Magnus uh, driving along. Toot, toot, toot. Uh, and they run into some of the barbarians who call them Devil Spawn. Because they haven't got the word yet from Perceptor Ninjika. And uh, they just start hitting them with their maces and clubs and whatnot. And a hammer. And Rodimus in Winnebago, Space Winnebago mode goes off the cliff. And we see, like, I, I think, you know, a very kind of rare st- uh, separation. You know, Rodimus and his trailer. Like, I don't, like, I'm trying to remember if it ever got, the, the combat deck and it ever got used. Like, Primes did. But uh, it does disappear and go, you know, goes off screen to, you know, subspace or wherever. Just like Primes. I, I, I just thought that was kind of neat. I don't know if I've ever noticed that before. Or, or if I have, it has it's, it doesn't happen very often. And I should note it comes right back off from off screen as soon as he needs it. So there you go. And uh, we get a whole uh, little, well, probably maybe one of Rodimus's more famous quotes here. Uh, let Ant play it for you as they drive the barbarians off. And it's one of my favorite too. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. How about we blow this popsicle stand? Uh, so they find Percept. They they enter the uh, the Tinkerer's shop. They find uh, Perceptor's body minus the Universal Emulator. And uh, so they go down to the city to uh, to look around and find him. Uh, get another little quip from Rodimus. You know, this, this episode really does uh, give Rodimus a little bit of some some of his uh, personality. Uh, but uh, you know, it's just pretty funny. Kind of actually, the the just the I said the animation the models are pretty crisp. But you know, he's it's a very awkward uh, bit of just Ultra Magnus carrying around uh, microscope mode uh, perceptor. So. <laughs> Cyclonus and, Quint- and a Quintesson. Quintessons, by the way, these people recognize on sight and hate, are just standing in the crowd trying to stir up the rabble. And yes, you know, the Quintesson is like, hey, don't matter attention to ourselves. It's like, why are you in the middle of these people? <laughs> Shouldn't they be freaked? It makes no, it makes no sense. Burn him now! Be silent! Don't call attention to us! Vengeance now! Anyways, Blur's about to get boiled in lava. So the uh, little Empress uh, comes down and tells them to stop, and they spring Perceptor out. You know, this is basically a minor god, the, the Ninjika. And, you know, and, and Perceptor kind of lays down exactly what's going on. It's like, hey, no, these, you know, this guy, you know, this guy should, is going to be, should be an ally. And these are not, the people, they not, your stars were not stolen. They're merely hidden. Uh, you know, in fact, you know, these guys are called Quintessons. They're bad guys, and they're going to be, and they're coming back, and we need to get ready for them. And taking a cue from Cyclonus, and but again, these two are still standing in the middle of this rabble, and it, it's not like if they're blending in; they're giant, and no one notices. It's just, it's, it really is too much to bear. But regardless, the Quintesson, you know, 
riles them up too much and they go attack. Uh, you know, they turn on the Empress and uh, the Ninjika because their fear outweighed, you know, their otherwise uh, be- their otherwise beliefs that they've held on to for so long. You know, I think there's a me- there's some kind of moral message there. Uh, take that as you will. And uh, and during the uh, fracas escape, uh, we see Cyclonus grab uh, Perceptor of slash the Universal Emulator slash the Ninjika. So we get. Uh, Blur is dropped into the uh, hot lava, melting, whatever it is. But it actually seems to be helping him, uh, you know, like therapeutically massaging his back, I guess. And the Quintessons, you know, get the Universal Emulator into their ship, got up, uh, casually toss away the uh, Ninjika body as Blur uh, starts to get out of the hot lava. Maybe not so hot lava. And then Rodimus says a line that I'm just... It's a hey speedball, wait for us. It's like hey speedball, wait for us. Uh, yeah, phrasing, phrasing, Rodimus. So we finish up the episode uh, with uh, somehow I, I don't I don't I don't know if I really ex- maybe Ian can explain. I don't really understand how you know they you know they send him back through the quadrant hole. They send the Quintesson ship goes back through the quadrant hole or the. Whatever the whatever the the, the MacGuffin, uh, Cyclonus chases them. Uh, Galvatron disappears halfway through this episode. He's just friggin' gone. Somehow that clears up the dust that's been blocking the stars, and we do get the the reasons with the capital R, why the Quintessons didn't want you know maybe they viewed them as a threat. They have a telepathic power that is powered by starlight, and when they when the dust up they kicked up, I guess uh, I'm guessing the quadrant ring thing sucked it out. I guess. I don't know. It, it 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 doesn't make a lot of sense anyway. Uh, yeah, but Perceptor's returned, and you know they you know the the people of the world see the truth and they're happy to have their power back. Uh, we never figure out exactly how the Autobots, uh, you know, get home. You know, maybe it's in the next episode. I don't think it is though. Anyway, uh, yeah, fun episode. It, it really is a good episode. I don't know why it's you know it, it done like nothing wrong with it. There's some fun stuff. I said the model, the animation models are really crisp. Uh, you know, it is herky jerky in places, but you know, for season three, it's not bad, and it's a fun little different kind of episode. A very Star Trekian feel to it, I'd say. Anyways, yeah, fun episode, and uh, back over to you, Ant. Thanks, Gabe, and you can catch Gabe over at his channel, The Salty Sea Man, on YouTube at YouTube.com/slash/recharge138. Now, a couple things. Uh, Gabe pointed out that he wanted me to touch on and, and some things I wanted to touch on as well. Uh, just some cool sound bites that uh, I wanted to work into this show. Um, first off, when the Autobots crash on this planet, uh, the natives, they notice. Behold, fire in the sky! Come on, guys, that's the wrong episode. Uh, I also wrote in my notes they were Samurai Vikings. Uh, so uh, take your pick on uh, how you want to visualize them or just go catch the episode. Now, speaking of Samurai Vikings, the uh, blacksmith uh, tinkerer, as Gabe calls him, uh, had a name. His name is Katsu Don. Also worth noting, uh, the performance of Roger C. Carmel as Cyclonus in this episode is great. Now, it's not his final role. Uh, he did record a few other uh, shows before his passing, but he did die nine days before this episode aired. 
and uh, with Scatman Crothers. Those are the two uh, actors from uh, the cast that passed away before the show finished. Now, going to the end of the episode, yes, the ending is a little weird and confusing and doesn't really properly explain itself, but I figured, you know what, let's let you figure it out for yourself. Incredible. They have a telepathic technology powered apparently by starlight. Small wonder the Quintessons wanted them locked away. In time, their capabilities will be as limitless as thought itself. Now, finally, at the end of the episode, Skylinks arrives to pick up the Autobots, and Katsudan has a promise. You and Nijika will meet again out among the stars. You know, my thoughts on this episode is it's a hidden gem. It's actually really, really much better than I remember it. Uh, there's a lot of really neat world building. This planet that they land on is just really cool. Uh, they ride lizards. The lizards have uh, individual names, so they're kind of like pets as well. Um, and, and the humanoid forms here are clearly about the size of the Transformers, so that it makes them um, similar in stature and strength. So it's 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 a neat place that eventually will get touched many many years later in a Japanese comic, but. Um, it's part of the lore, uh, much like season two and season three, that rarely, rarely gets re-explored. And uh, that's quite the shame. And that takes us to the final episode we're going to cover in this episode of Transformers University. And that is season three, episode 28, overall episode number 93. The final season three episode to air in 1986, The Burden Hardest to Bear. And this was written by Michael Charles Hill. And for more on this episode, we're going to join the host of Radio Free Cybertron, Brian Kilby, as he takes us to a Transformers adventure in Japan. Hey, this is Brian Kilby, and uh, I am talking about the Season 3 episode from November 1986, The Burden Hardest to Bear. So, I fully admit that I approached Generation 1 in context of my childhood. And in hindsight, most of G1 is not that great. And this is an episode that I have built up in my head over the years as being more consequential than maybe it really is. It does add uh, some dimensionality to the, the, the myth of the Matrix or, the, or the, the basic ethos of what the Matrix is and how it works and but realistically, more than anything, what this does, it really adds to the character and uh, really speaks to what I like most about uh, Rodimus Prime and why I think Rodimus Prime is still the best leader of the Autobots. Um, I would say this is really a more of a second tier season three episode. Again, I, I love season three. I think season three is the best Transformers fiction uh, that's been on television with the exception of animated Beast Wars. And I'll say most of, I'll say most of like the last back half of Transformers Prime. Uh, but generally speaking, I, I still prefer season three and it's sort of science fiction futuristic quality uh, to most everything else Transformers related. I, I love season three, but this is a second tier episode. Uh, for me, my top tier are episodes like uh, Web World, um, Fighter Flea. I love Fighter Flea so much. Uh, Anything involving Octane is excellent. Um, I love the ultimate weapon, but 
going back, I don't know that the ultimate weapon carries as much uh, weight even as this one does. But it's again, it's, it's a favorite of mine, and I, and I love these episodes dearly. So I'm going to uh, go through what sort of happens in the episode and uh, provide some commentary along the way. Uh, I think, like I said, going through this, it's less consequential as far as Transformers continuity goes than I initially first thought. It's been years. Gosh, it may have been 20 years since I've watched this. It's probably been since the 90s. I haven't watched this uh, probably since about 1997 and 1998 until this until this morning. But um, so basically the episode starts off with uh, Broadside battling Devastator in Asia. And of course, you know, the Autobots protect. Uh, some humans are in danger. Uh, broadside uh, scoops them off to safety. Then we move to Astro Train about to plow into a passenger train uh, on a track. Uh, the aerial bots show up and basically shoot them off the track with just a barrage of a fire uh, somehow does not damage the train track in any way. And the passenger train is able to go on. So basically what they're, they're setting is, uh, you know, they're wreaking havoc in Japan is basically what's going on. A uh, defense is battling Bruticus, which I love when season two characters like this show up, especially uh, defense or Bruticus uh, because they're so great. Um, Cyclonus and the sweeps uh, intervene uh, in, into that battle uh, shooting uh, Defensor, uh, then Cup and Hot Rod, who are riding on Skylinks, and of course, you know, I love Skylinks, uh, they join the fray and, you know, basically break up the fight. Uh, this, they basically uh, land or wind up outside of a dojo, uh, which we see uh, the sensei speaking, uh, you know, sagely to his students, um, and they walk out and Rodimus asks if, if everyone's okay. Uh, we'll we'll revisit this dojo later. Uh, Hot Rod is called to the Imperial Palace, of course, because in this future, the Autobots are really citizens of the world. Uh, in G1, you know, you see Optimus Prime interacting with world leaders and such. Uh, but it, in that case, they're still more or less newcomers. Uh, you know, the Autobots have been on Earth now at this point for like 20 years. They're almost like their own government. Uh, but it's, and I really, I really appreciate how uh, ingrained the Autobots really are because <laughs> instead of, instead of the wonder and awe that uh, you would see earlier on, in some cases, uh, with humans interacting with the Transformers, it's like, oh, it's, you know, the big metal people from over there. They're, they're getting in our, getting in our business today, so... Uh, but he goes to the uh, uh, Imperial Palace and gets basically yelled at for hours. And uh, he's just really frustrated. His diplomacy skills are really lacking. Uh, he basically storms off, suggesting that the Japanese protect themselves. I guess he's unfamiliar with the treaties of San Francisco and the mutual cooperation and security between the U.S. and Japan. Basically saying that, uh, you know, the, the Japanese have a limited uh, amount of their... Uh, <laughs> Uh, basic uh, income that they can put toward defense. Of course, maybe it's more of a police action that, you know, they're talking about, but uh, I don't know. I, I digress, but uh, I still think that, uh, I still think he probably needs to read a, a history book. Um, so uh, Marissa Fairborn uh, arrives uh, basically back on the scene at wherever the Autobots are. Uh, they're talking, talking it out. 
Uh, she tells Rodimus, who's been complaining <laughs> to uh, to Cup, basically, that uh, he's over overworked and stressed. Uh, but Marissa says that the Earth Defense Force needs help, and Rodimus basically gets pissy and uh, <laughs> drives off. Give me a break, will you? Since when am I the only one who can solve everybody's problems? But, but you... <laughs> Just leave me alone! Cup tells uh, Marissa about the Geary, uh, or the, the burden hearts to bear, which is not apparently the, the appropriate translation for that word. In fact, I, you know, I had a friend at work named Geary, and um, I wish I'd known the meaning of his name. I would have blown him away by telling him that, but he probably knew. But actually, you know, Cup describes uh, this situation also happening to Optimus. Same thing happened to Optimus Prime after the Matrix was passed to him. Optimus learned to live with his Geary and respect it. Optimus Prime is dead at this point. He's not on screen. But that one sentence adds more depth uh, and character to Optimus Prime than like the last three Transformer series have by, you know, really trying to to overplay Optimus as a character. Uh, you know, Optimus is more of a force of nature. You don't need to go too far into trying to flesh out his character. He is, uh, he is what he is. He's two-dimensional. Little bits like this go a long way to flesh him out. We don't need a whole series with him, you know, you know trying to confront his demons. But um, <laughs> with that, uh, basically... Marissa decides that it's her job to uh, intervene and uh, basically talk Rodimus off the edge and, and bring him back down. So uh, Rodimus is out driving fast on a winding uh, road, basically uh, a cliff's edge. Uh, basically, there's a guardrail protecting him, you know, keeping cars from going off the road and down a cliff. Uh, but he's driving fast. Just blowing off steam. And uh, Marissa shows up wanting to uh, help. Uh, Rodimus wants to hear none of it. Then uh, Dead End and Wild Rider show up. And basically, they're uh, just out having fun, as, you know, Stunicons do. And uh, Rodimus challenges them to a race. Uh, they are more than happy to oblige. Uh, Marissa follows. Uh, gets oil slicked for her uh, her good deed, for her efforts. And basically, Rodimus is like, oh, crap, I need to do something to help her. So he turns around, uh, strikes one of the Stunicons, and basically uh, gets knocked off of uh, the cliff through a guardrail, rolls down the cliff, and Marissa gets stuck in a bog or a swamp or something. And uh, the Decepticons go to check Hot Rod, or pardon me, Rodimus, but they do find Hot Rod, and they find the Matrix laying there. I guess they actually didn't care whether or not Hot Rod was there. But uh, Rodimus transforms back into Hot Rod, which, you know, as far as storytelling goes and uh, and uh, metaphor, I don't really like that Rodimus reverts back to Hot Rod when he doesn't have the Matrix. Again, metaphorically, you know, I think Hot Rod has grown far more than this storytelling trope or idea uh, basically gives him credit for. And I just don't think that it's, it's fair to represent him as um, going back to uh, like a neotenous state, you know, uh, a childlike state. But for the purposes of storytelling, it works for this episode. So the Stonicons take the Matrix back to Galvatron, who is very pleased. 
and basically says that the, he'll use it to destroy the Autobots. Being Galvatron, of course, he puts it into his arm cannon. At last, all shall be one. Under Galvatron's rule. You dropped it, didn't you? You broke the Matrix, didn't you? Like it's a DVD player or a tablet or something and dropping it's going to break it. I love that. Uh, he tries to fire again and it shoots out Autobot ghosts. <laughs> it's that's that's so Shakespearean. Uh, and basically, uh, uh, she taught Autobot ghosts who tell him that he needs to return it to uh, the Autobots. Uh, he agrees to do so. Uh, they leave. Then he gives it to Scourge and tells him to destroy it, of course, because you're going to trust Scourge to do that. But mighty Galvatron, you agree to return it. Alright! If we can't have it, then no one shall. Uh, Scourge uh, takes it, says, hey, this is ultimate power. Uh, it's stupid to destroy it. And he throws it in his chest. And he just goes through this gruesome metamorphosis to, you know, Scourge him as Prime or whatever you want to say. He's like even crying as this is happening. It's just lovely. Uh, he uh, proclaims that he has the power of 100,000 Decepticons. And he goes uh, back and uh, challenges uh, Galvatron uh, basically to... Uh, you know, for leadership of the Decepticons. The Matrix gives Scourge uh, crazy new powers. He has these I-beams that pack a wallop. Uh, he shoots uh, Galvatron with the I-beams that put Galvatron out of commission for a, for a few minutes. And loyal Cyclonus, of course, uh, defends his master and shoots Scourge. And basically, Scourge bounces it back off of his stomach like some funny Dragon Ball Z character or something. I don't know. But he basically uh, takes Cyclonus out as well. And uh, Scourge declares himself leader of the Decepticons and that uh, he tells them that they need to go to Earth to attack the Autobots and they follow suit. Um, Galvatron basically pulls himself out. Uh, he and Cyclonus agree that they have to go and uh, stop Scourge. And of course, Galvatron also strikes Cyclonus down with his back of his hand, basically, because that's what, you know, an abusive relationship is like at least on screen and on in a cartoon in the 1980s. I just want to say that uh, there is a lot of awesome fanfic potential that I think personally is left untapped with uh, Scourge as leader of the Decepticons with the Matrix. I'm certain somebody back in the day wrote something around that. Uh, I know that the quote-unquote Decepticon Matrix was uh, you know fanfic fodder as well, but I just love the idea of Scourge having the Matrix and being the Decepticon leader. Had uh, things worked out just a little differently, you know, he might have uh, kept uh, leadership of the Decepticons through the power of the Matrix, and I don't know, if the Matrix is a force of good, maybe eventually, you know, it might have uh, changed their uh, ways, who knows? We will never know, because that is not what happens. Uh, they uh, are on the way to Earth, of course the Decepticons decide that they are going to attack Japan, because you know, I guess that's what you do. But before the Decepticons are back in Japan, uh, Hot Rod finds himself in that dojo that he was at earlier. Uh, somehow he managed to get in there and, you know, uh, he was on his knees, uh, deferentially speaking to that sensei, who gave the, basically the same story that uh, Cup gave earlier about the Geary, uh, except he did a better job of it. And he... Uh, 
uh, basically told Hot Rod that if you shirk your responsibility, you're a loser. That's the, the long and the short of the story. Whatever destiny obliges one to do, one's giddy. For he who deserts his obligation is already defeated. Thank you, Sensei. You've given me a lot to think about. So the Decepticons arrive in Japan, start attacking uh, people. Uh, it's weird. Scourge has, again, strange powers. He has, like, this energy thing that uh, basically immobilizes Autobots, it seems. Uh, he utilizes that with uh, with Cup and with Broadside again. And um, it's just strangely, he Scourge threatens this old lady. And then out of the blue, this young man, a warrior with a sword because I guess the writers thought that people carried swords in Japan, uh, comes up from behind Scourge and attacks Scourge's uh, Roboto Achilles tendon, I guess, and Scourge goes down and uh, he saves the uh, the old lady. They run away. Um, but then, of course, Scourge is vengeful and uh, he tracks them down into an alley and is about to strike them dead when Hot Rod arrives on the scene and basically bumps Scourge and throws him into a, to the, into the building. The Matrix did this to you? Then I have to take it back. I see now it is my obligation. I belong to it. As much as it belongs to me. He uh, basically shoots Scourge with this overpowered pistol, probably the one Megatron used to kill Optimus uh, because it's so powerful. Uh, it, it strikes Scourge down. Hot Rod takes the Matrix back and uh, returns back to uh, to Rodimus Prime, and he drives off with the uh, the people in tow. Galvatron and Cyclonus show up. Scourge begs for mercy, which, of course, you know, Galvatron does not give. Scourge blames his actions on the Matrix. Uh, Galvatron throws him and then shoots him with a cannon, but somehow manages to not kill him. Uh, Rodimus shows back up. And basically, they live happily ever after. Watching it again, there's just, you know, I really do love it. It is a bit shallow. It does feature a lot of, say, like, pop psychology ideas. But again, this was a show presented to five-year-olds, or in my case, a seven-year-old. So, you know, in, in that case, for the 80s, I think this was still a pretty darn good episode. And I think that uh, there is a hidden message in here that I didn't get as a kid and other kids probably missed as well. But, you know, it's basically if you have a responsibility, you need to follow through it. Uh, you know, I don't know if that was the intent, if that was like if in their, their writing sessions, like, hey, let's have a moral to this episode. Uh, season three tended to have, in my mind, more morals to the stories than season two episodes did. Uh, they're more sometimes more fable like. I don't know. I I don't. I, I love season three. I think this is a good episode. It's pretty emblematic of season three. Uh, season three is a little more heady, a uh, little more cerebral than. It's a lot more cerebral than season two, and uh, this episode deals more with the really the battle within than it does the a battle of actual Decepticons. Decepticons are. Uh, what was I going to say in this episode, but in a lot of episodes, uh, the Decepticons are really plot devices, and that's that's really more than in, more than normal. That's what they are here. If you haven't watched it recently, I think you should check it out. Um, I don't think this is the first season three episode you should watch. 
If you just want to watch one season three episode, I would probably start with Web World. Uh, that's going to be a little out there for some people because it is such a strange concept for a for an afternoon cartoon. But I think that it's you know I think that it, it's probably the best the series has to offer. But uh, yeah, really, I, I I think this is a good episode and it's definitely worth watching. You know, and I'd have to agree with Brian in this one. This is a great episode. Um, it's very quotable for an episode that people don't necessarily remember. Galvatron is amazing in this episode, and we'll talk a little bit about a few of those things that Brian didn't cover. And uh, Rodimus Prime is really good. I like the development of him in this. I like that he reverts back to being Hot Rod when he loses the Matrix. Um, so I, I disagree with Brian there. I think that's pretty cool. And Scourge's uh characterization in this episode also really good i think brian touched on a lot of the things i wanted to mention but i'm gonna go back to a, just a couple of things from my notes uh first thing early on when defensor is fighting bruticus um there is some harm coming to the people of japan and for whatever reason this soundbite of defensor yelling at bruticus uh just always sticks in my head no more harm will come to the humans. Humans is is just such a weird delivery, and 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 I really find that amusing. Uh, giri uh, actually means duty, according to the folks over at TF Wiki. So that means um, cup probably meant the word gimu, which means obligation. Uh, so Rodimus Prime, yeah, he does not like his duty he likes to stop at the duty-free shop so you know brian mentioned the ghosts of the autobot leaders uh demanding that galvatron return the matrix of leadership and i i didn't put the sound in brian's segment but i do think you need to hear it so here it is And that actually comes from a longer version of the script. Uh, the rest of that was actually... Please be kind. Don't forget to rewind. Late fees are $2 a day. $2 a day. You know, one of the other bits of Rodimus Prime um, characterization in here is as Hot Rod... Um, being a youngster again, he uh, he really does not want any of that responsibility of the Matrix. And he goes on another rant. There are a couple of really good Rodimus rants in this episode. And the rant in the middle of the episode is actually pretty good. Check it out. I'm telling you, all of you, that I'm sick of being responsible for the preservation of the universe and its outlying suburbs. Day in and day out, punch this Decepticon, bash that Decepticon. What's the point? This has been going on for a few dozen millennia now, and I don't see it changing, do you? You want the Matrix back? Swell. Go get it, but find some other sucker to carry it. Because I quit! And that will wrap up the burden hardest to bear, but we do have a little bit more to talk about. The Secret Files of Teletran 2. Now, the Secret Files of Teletran 2 were the last segment of every episode in Season 3, uh, they were basically a way uh, to recap the history, huh, much like the show in a much shorter form, uh, within the cartoon. So if you hadn't seen season one or two, if you hadn't seen Transformers the movie, uh, season three is very different. 
uh, from the first two seasons. So actually, even that in that, uh, you know, jumping from one to the other from season two into season three, it was a way to catch up the viewer on who all these new people were. Now, in the U.S. version, there were seven in total. Uh, The Japanese version of the series actually had a few more. They had 13 in total. However, not all of the seven from the U.S. were used in the Japanese version of the series. There were, in fact, two that didn't make it over, and we'll talk about those. Let's start this conversation with the way The Secret Files of Teletran 2 introduced the new cast of Autobots. Fleeing the wars that devastated their home planet of Cybertron, most of the Autobots made Earth their temporary home. Under the leadership of the powerful robot Optimus Prime, the heroic Autobots battled fearlessly against the assaults of the evil Decepticons, protecting their new human friends. Now it is the year 2006, and the Autobots have reclaimed the planet of their origin, Cybertron, to establish a new golden age. In migrating from Earth, they have been reunited with companions from other regions of the galaxy, including Skylinks, the gigantic space shuttle, Blur. There, I've turned off the go so we can walk. The fastest car on wheels. Cup, the flinty old warrior. Wheelie, who always offers advice in rhymes. Springer, the mighty helicopter. Arcee, a forceful female Autobot. And Rekgar, the leader of a tribe of Autobots that dwells on the planet Junkion. The Autobots have a new leader, Rodimus Prime, who inherited from Optimus Prime the Autobot Matrix of Leadership. As a receptacle of the wisdom of Autobot leaders for the past millions of years, the Matrix helps Rodimus guide the Autobots in their darkest hours as they fight to end the tyranny of the evil Decepticons. I like that clip, and it's a great way to kind of get an idea of who everyone is in a really quick, short amount of time. And they did the same, of course, for the Decepticons. The Decepticons are a malevolent race of robot warriors. Brutal and merciless, the Decepticons are driven by a single, undeviating goal. Total domination of the universe. In the war that raged between the Decepticons and Autobots for millions of years, their home planet of Cybertron was drained of its once rich sources of energy. In hopes of finding new reserves for making Energon their basic fuel, the Decepticons followed the Autobots to Earth. Huh? What is it? Laser beak. Prepare for flight. Operation Destruction. Under the leadership of the ruthless Megatron, they continued their efforts to destroy the remaining Autobot forces. They attacked throughout the Earth and in space using their underwater Decepticon headquarters as their staging base and bunker. But by the year 2000, the Decepticons had proven to be the losers of the last great war. In an attempt to bolster the Decepticon's strength, the evil planet-gobbling world Unicron reformed Megatron into a new robot named Galvatron to lead the Decepticons in a new era. Now, in 2006, the Decepticons have retreated to a burned-out hulk of a planet called Char, a world of ash and ruin. Galvatron and his Decepticon lieutenants, the sleek and awesome Cyclonus, and the mighty Scourge, the master of the dreaded sweeps, strike fear throughout the universe. Their ultimate goal, to reconquer Cybertron and destroy the Autobots. Now from the Autobots and Decepticons, they jumped into some of the side teams as well. So we have one about the Predacons. (laughs) 
the untamed forces of nature, the Predacons are ferocious animal robots who lash out with fury. Swift, savage, and always relying on animal instinct, the Predacons explode into action. There's Dive Bomb, the eagle who can spot a target from a mile up in the sky. Rampage, the tiger who can leap 500 feet. Headstrong, the rhino whose horn can puncture eight feet of solid rock. Tantrum, the buffalo who loves to use brute force. And there's the Predacon commander, Razor Claw, whose claws can whip through steel. Together, they combine into a hair trigger horror, the giant robot Predaking. Predacons merge to become Predaking! As a warrior, Predaking has no equal. As a weapon, he has no known weaknesses. He can lift 500 tons without even straining a circuit. With the help of the Predacons, no planet is too wild or untamed for the Decepticons to conquer. Autobots are forced to find new defenses against the mechanical menace, Predaking. So, you know, I really like that line about no planet is too wild. Uh, because it, it, it's, it's a very short, simple way of doing some world building. Uh, and I think that's, that's really uh, one of the strong points of these secret files of teletran too right because they they create worlds that we haven't seen and won't see and kind of spark the imagination to what could have been and what was going on behind the scenes right when when we weren't seeing our favorite characters the next one is one of the ones that didn't air in japan and it's about the cassettes from the secret files of teletran 2 in the days of Megatron, Decepticons developed the art of espionage using cassette technology. Their first cassette, Laserbeak, could fly undetected into any Autobot stronghold, record information, and then return to base. Then the Decepticons decided to increase their spying abilities with Ratbat. As a bat, Ratbat can hide in crevices that Laserbeak can't reach, and he's especially effective in tunnels, caves, or in the darkness of space. Ratbat reports on the Autobots' most carefully guarded secrets. The Autobots had no choice but to strike back at these Decepticon techniques of stealth, building a force of cassette transformers of their own, with Blaster as their guardian. They constructed Ramhorn, the rhino, who can use animalistic force if cornered, and Steeljaw, the lion, who can crawl through the foliage of any alien world to sneak up on Decepticons. They also bolstered their cassette force with Rewind and Eject, who can transform to robot mode and use more conventional fighting force techniques. I like this one because it, um, it shows both the Autobot and Decepticon cassettes. Uh, Ratbat gets the most characterization here in this one. And one interesting note from the video portion of this, when they mention Eject, they show Ramhorn in cassette mode uh, during this segment because Eject barely appeared in the show. Moving on to the next clip, this is one of my all-time favorites, and this is on Ultra Magnus. From the secret files of Teletran 2, 
Ultra Magnus is the most mature spokesman for the Autobot cause. As a soldier, he is always practical and serious. Move out, but be careful. And he is so loved by his fellow Autobots that Wheelie and Daniel traveled millions of miles to the Autobot Records asteroid just so they could find out Ultra Magnus's birthday. In his vehicle mode, Ultra Magnus is an armored transport truck, a machine with magnificent fighting skills. His enemies, the Decepticons, respect his courage. But most of all, they fear Ultra Magnus's spirit of self-sacrifice. Wheelie! He always thinks first of the welfare of his fellow Autobots and his mission. Forget about me. The shuttle has priority. The peace conference depends on it. Ultra Magnus. Now you know how I talk about playable moments. Uh, this whole segment made me want that Ultra Magnus toy uh, and totally had me replaying moments just from this and wanting to see the birthday party episode, which I don't even know if I saw until I was an adult. This one actually pretty much tells you the entire story of that episode, but it's such a, it's such a great just entryway into that character. And the Ultra Magnus piece also uh, did not get used in Japan, but one that did get used in Japan is this one featuring Metroplex and Trypticon. The Volcano Headquarters for the Autobots on Earth was destroyed in a Decepticon attack. Now, in the year 2006, Autobot Cities has become the new Autobot Earth base. Autobot City is also a transformer known as Metroplex, with the capacity to transform from city mode to a battle station or to a giant robot. Metroplex is the Autobots' last line of defense, the robot they depend upon when all other options fail. Metroplex is When Metroplex transforms to a robot, some of his modular components form smaller, separate robots. Six-Gun, the ideal defensive battle scout. Slammer, the tank. And Scamper, the tough little car that berths in Metroplex's city ramp. To counter the power of Metroplex on Earth, the Decepticons have built Decepticon City, known as Trypticon. The city can transform to battle station mode, becoming a mobile menace with X-ray lasers and twin photon cannons. Trypticon also has a dinosaur mode, an immense walking reptilian form that crushes anything in its path. Metroplex and Trypticon are each other's deadliest enemies. Whenever they approach one another, they lock in battle and engage in incredible combat. And the victor in their epic struggles may someday turn the tide of battle in favor of either the Decepticons or the Autobots. Which will it be? You know, it's funny. I'm not used to hearing uh, the phrase Decepticon City uh, as a location and not a description couple things worth noting here yes it does have a little piece of original animation in it featuring scamper and slammer in their vehicle modes driving around i also find interesting that it's the they mentioned the last line of defense but they seem to have gotten the other last line of defense omega supreme Uh, and it was the only one to appear in only one episode and this one only aired at the end of the episode the quintesson journal now speaking of the quintessons that brings us to our final clip the seventh clip overall and that is the Quintessons. The Quintessons are sinister robotic creatures with five-sided heads, each side with a different face, including the face of death. These tentacled beings who travel on beams of energy are cruel and emotionless, and the creators of all the Transformers on Cybertron millions of years ago. 
the Quintessons never intended their intelligent machines to develop emotions. But to their horror, the Transformers rose up against their masters and drove them away from Cybertron. The Quintessons retreated to a planet they named Quintessa, where they lived a stark and barren existence with their Sharptacon guards. Sinister and vicious, lacking any individualistic intelligence, the Sharptacons usually serve as executioners for their Quintesson masters, who toss condemned victims into the Sharptacon pit. What is that? The Quintessons finally decided to blow up their planet, Quintessa. I shall miss Quintessa. To try to prevent Autobot captives and invaders from escaping. Their plot to destroy the Autobots fade. And now, without a world of their own, they roam the universe with their Sharktacons, making victims of whatever luckless beings cross their path. Their goal is to regain control of Cybertron and eradicate all Autobots and Decepticons. Yet, so manipulative and cunning are they that they even trick the Decepticons into helping them achieve their aim. Very soon now, Cybertron will be ours! trying to figure out what they meant by finally decided like were they talking about it (laughs) it's a very very bizarre way of putting things and that will wrap up the secret files of teletran 2 thanks for listening to the show stick around to hear what's coming up next episode but first i want to fill you in on a few ways you can stay in touch with the show want to be on the show Leave us a voicemail at 702-763-4838. That's 702-POD-4TFU. Or send an email to info at tfu.info. Be sure to catch us on Twitter at TFU underscore info and on Facebook and Instagram under the username TFU info, all one word. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash TFU info, where we post all of our podcasts, plus special video segments, reviews, and live coverage of Transformers-related events such as New York Toy Fair and New York Comic Con. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please visit us at www.tfu.info, the world's longest-running transforming toy archive. So I want to thank you for joining me through the final three episodes of 1986. We do have two more episodes in Season 3 to cover in 1987. Uh, But before we go to 1987, we do have a pair of episodes left in 1986. And next time on the show, we're going to talk one last time about Transformers the movie. And we're going to go over the original Ron Friedman script. We'll point out the differences and talk about uh, the framework that was laid out in the first draft. So until next time, I am your host, Anthony Brucali, owner-operator, madman behind TFU.info. See ya.